Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Ezra Klein Show. I am the host of The Ezra Klein Show. My name is Ezra Klein. I'm happy you are here. And I am happy to have had this conversation this week with Heather McGee, who is the president of Demos and Demos Action. And Heather is a super smart thinker at the intersection of politics, race, and economics. And the think tank she leads has done tremendous work around civic engagement and inequality. And she herself has done a lot of great thinking and a lot of great research on these issues. And this is, I think, a conversation worth listening to at this moment in our politics. We go pretty deep on the ways in which America's racial legacy influences both the economy today and our political system today. We talk a lot about what Donald Trump means in this context and how to understand his rise. Talk a lot about Heather's view that the Democratic Party has made a tremendous series of mistakes in thinking of race as something that helps white people and hurts folks of color and why she thinks that is an outdated way of understanding racism. As always, I have three requests for you. One is to share and rate this show. Go to Twitter, go to Facebook, go to Snapchat, whatever you might use to tell people about things on the internet. And if you've been enjoying the show, please let them know you've been enjoying it. Please tell them to listen to whatever episode is your favorite. I appreciate it a lot. It's how the show grows. And rate us on iTunes if you get a second. That's very helpful as well. The second is to listen to our other podcast, The Weeds, which I do along with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff. Very, very policy focused. If you like this episode of The Ezra Klein Show, you will love The Weeds. I guarantee it. The final thing is to email me feedback on the show, guest requests. A lot of the folks who end up being guests on the show are people you all have suggested. So I really appreciate the feedback. I really appreciate the pointers and I do take them seriously. I do read it myself. So, so please don't be shy. With that, here's Heather McGee. How are you? I'm good. Ezra. We've I'm connected. Good. We've connected. We can actually hear each other. This is a very exciting, <laughs> exciting development in our podcast. <laughs> How are you enjoying 2016 so far? You know, honestly, as ugly as it's been, I feel like this, these are the undercurrents of our politics all the time. So I'm actually glad that we're having them out. Well, that's interesting. What do you mean by that? As most people that you ask why they're supporting Trump will say, he's saying what he thinks. And what they really mean is he's saying what I think. And this country is at a moment of such profound demographic change. 
layered on with economic inequality and sort of tectonic shifts in how we live, that for our politics not to be explicitly engaging in that conversation and working it out just allows for them to be dog whistles and unconsciously exploited fears and anxieties. That's such an interesting point. Do you think that when our politics explicitly engages in these questions, we make them better or we make them worse? So 08, there's all this talk, which I think people recognized was a bit fantastical at the time, but that, you know, Barack Obama was a post-racial candidate. If he got elected, it would say something very profound about the country and its ability to move on from its racist heritage. And then he gets elected. And something that happens is that our politics becomes structured much more by race. Uh, I've been really struck by this research by a guy named Michael Tesla, who showed that in the 80s and the 90s, if you polled questions about race, uh, the, the controversies that had to do with race, they didn't end up having much of a partisan split. So if you polled something like the O.J. Simpson verdict, Republicans and Democrats had basically the same ideas on it. And in the Obama era, if you poll anything that even touches on race, something like should 12 years a slave win an Oscar? Now it's all Democrats say it should and all, not all, but most Democrats say it should and most Republicans say it shouldn't. And that we seem to have Instead of working out our racial disagreements through politics, we seem to have added our political disagreements to race. Well, there's a very simple kind of explanation for it. And then there's a sort of deeper, more complicated one. I think the simple explanation is that, you know, Barack Obama was an incredibly compelling candidate. And those who refused to vote for him may have had strong racial feelings, right? So that makes sense that the People who moved to the Democratic Party and to Barack Obama were people who, by definition, were willing to vote for a black man. That's sort of the simple answer. I think the more complex answer is that this is just the near, hopefully, end point of a three-generation-long reshuffling of our partisan affiliation by identity. That began, obviously, with the Southern strategy um, and has— had valences around things that we think of in in non-racialized terms, such as how big you want government to be, how high you want taxes to be. But a lot of research has shown that those questions, which are basically questions of um, what do you think of the other people that make up your society with whom you have to share resources? How much do you trust the powerful as the, the face of the powerful is changing? are, of course, questions that can fall on that fundamental building block of your identity, which in this country is race. So let's pull back to that moment for a minute, because you were involved in the 2008 election, but you didn't work for Obama or or for Hillary Clinton. You worked for John Edwards. Tell me a bit about how that, how, how did you end up working for Edwards and why? You mean, how does a black woman end up working not for the first female potential contender or the presidential nomination or for the black man, but rather for the white Southerner? Uh, I should let you ask these questions. (laughs) Good question. (laughs) So I started out my career in uh, public policy in 2002 when I joined the organization that I'm now the president of, Demos. And Demos at that time was sort of founded as kind of part of the baby boomlet of progressive think tanks in the early 2000s. And we had a very specific 
class-focused mission to address inequality in our democracy and our economy. And I grew up in a very, I grew up sort of politically um, in terms of my political education and my economic education as, as a class person. I thought that rising inequality, which was very visible already in the late 1990s and early 2000s, was the fundamental question of our time. And I worked on issues, economic issues, like the rise of debt and John Edwards in the 04 primary, when he first did his To America speech, really took up the issue that I and Demos was working on at the time, which was the tripling of credit card debt over the course of the 90s, uh, subprime lending, payday lending. And he made that part of his stump speech. And I thought, you know, here is a white Southerner who is telling the economic story that could potentially uh, realign the white vote with their economic interests. And that was incredibly appealing to me. And he was, you know, in the primary, even in 2008, the only one who was saying that we need big, bold, transformational change and that inequality was the major problem of our time. So it seemed kind of obvious to me that I would go with him. Plus, he offered me a pretty great job as the deputy director of domestic policy. I didn't get quite the same call from the the now president and from Secretary Clinton. <laughs> I think this speaks to something that was very present in particularly left of center politics in the 90s and the early 2000s and, and is really something that's changed, which was this idea, and you heard it a lot back then, that in order to push this kind of progressivism, this kind of populism, you needed the right messenger, that, mm. it, that there was a Nixon goes to China dimension to economic populism, and you needed someone like a white Southerner like John Edwards. And that the idea that you would have Barack Hussein Obama, it was ridiculous. And it's fascinating to me how much that has drained out of our politics by 2016. The idea that, you know, the now we have a democratic socialist running for president, or he may not be by the time people hear this, but the idea that you need a messenger who has the cultural signifiers of Southern white America in order to make progressivism palatable to white voters has really shifted from a fundamental assumption of the democratic political class to something that if anything has become, um, I don't exactly want to say it's seen as a negative because I'm not sure that's right, but it is certainly not seen as necessary. Why do you think that is? Well, I think in some ways it's, it's raw politics, right? The Democratic coalition required in the 1990s a very large portion of the white vote and of the white male vote, at least to be not very opposed, right? This is how we got Bill Clinton as a, a white Southern man riding on an idea of being a new Democrat who would be tough on crime, who would end big government and end welfare as we know it, right? All very explicit dog whistles. Yeah, so now we, now we talk about explicit dog whistles because they're so obvious. So, but now the president has shown that a multiracial coalition that is really backed by surges in turnout by women and people of color and young people can be a winning formula. So I think in some ways the Democratic elite has not changed in its calculation uh, in terms of what they ultimately want. It's just that the numbers have changed. I will say, however, that I think it is important to the progressive coalition, and we're seeing this very much play out. Uh, we have seen it in the Democratic primary. I think it has been significant that the you know class-first populist 
was an older white man. And that was part of the that has been part of the excitement, right? The idea that he can speak to uh, particularly white men about their economic fates and bring them over to the Democratic coalition in that way uh, has been an, a very important part of, of Bernie Sanders' campaign. So John Edwards ended up having a pretty strange denouement. I'm, I'm curious if, <laughs> how you think about him in that campaign in retrospect. Oh, Ezra. <laughs> um, I don't know if you've, you've ever worked for a candidate, but it is, it's quite an experience because you spend 18 to 20 hours a day, sleepless nights, working so hard, and politicians are can be deeply disappointing. I will say, you know, it's interesting, Jim Tankersley did a piece about kind of the legacy of the Edwards campaign and how so many of the policy ideas are now at the center of the political debate. The message, first of all, about inequality and about two Americas, about the role of Wall Street, really is now kind of the democratic message. So I think in some ways, he was ahead of his time. He was obviously a deeply flawed messenger personally. But If you look at where the Democratic Party is right now, the central platform ideas are bold and transformational, which is uh, what what John Edwards' uh, slogan was in 2008, right? We're not talking about trying to save Pell Grants for higher education. We're talking about free higher education and debt-free higher education. We really are actually a much more progressive party. And I would say, and this hasn't, I think, been said enough, that the New Democrat, third way, Democratic Leadership Council type of Democratic Party is is no longer really with us. Were you a fan of the show West Wing? (laughs) Yes. So I've always thought it's so funny looking back at that show now. To your point about bold and transformational being much more part of the Democratic Party, that was this fantasy Democrats had of of the presidency they wanted. That's how people interpreted it at the time, certainly. And you look back at that show and President Bartlett didn't get anything done at all. And the stuff (laughs) he really worked to get done was the most small bore, you know, add mammograms, I think it was, to Medicare, make college tuition deductible, which I'm not even sure is a good idea. (laughs) It it, it was so small. And, you know, that was in the book, particularly, I think, in the Bush era, liberals felt so connected to that that vision of politics. And then Obama came in and, and the stuff he passed would have looked ridiculous mm-hmm. on that show, right? They never would have they never would have even attempted it. And and I think there's something to that that the Democratic Party's ambitions between nineteen ninety six and two thousand and eight rose really dramatically. That there had been a, a sense that uh, I think in the Democratic Party that they were culturally out of step with the country and that in order to win and hold power it was a constant compromise with a political center that wasn't really where they were. And the, the more recent incarnations of the Democratic Party are, are quite emboldened from, from that period. They need to be, Ezra. I mean, half of the American people can't pay a $400 bill that arrives on their doorstep without going into debt or selling something. We have an existential crisis to humanity in global climate change. I mean, this is not a time for small ideas, school uniforms and and things like that. This is this is really a time when our political system has become so out of touch with the not just wishes, but urgent needs of the vast majority of the American people, that big structural change is needed. At Demos, we do a lot of research in partnership with uh, political scientists about exactly how the inequality in our democracy 
is creating inequality in our economy and what a feedback loop it is. And and what we know now is that because of the inequality in the voting booth in terms of the voting gap between high income and working class voters and, of course, the role of, of big money in politics, the preferences, the policy preferences of those who comprise the donor class basically control and working in middle class People across party are essentially unable to have their policy preferences, whether they're for a high minimum wage or a free college, a stronger safety net for unemployment. Um, those policy preferences can't break through unless the donor class agrees. And that is a fundamental question of our democracy. And so I think any party that is unwilling to take on big, big ambitions is just missing what's going on in the country right now. So I, I want to separate two things out here because I think there's a lot in, in what you just said that I want to unpack. So one, I think you're talking to some degree here about the Martin Glenn's research about democratic responsiveness, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yep. So there's yeah, I, I uh, Gillen, Ben Page, uh, lots of folks, yep. Right. I want to put that to the side for a minute because I actually would love to chat with you about it because I've become much more, after writing a bit about that when it came out and then more recently seeing some critiques, I've become a lot more skeptical of it. But something else you said, and, and I've read your research on this, has really it influenced me, and but I think raises a big question. Mm-hmm. There is a very sharp change in turnout among uh, voters by income class. And then there's also a very sharp change in turnout between different kinds of elections, presidential to midterms. Mm-hmm. And I have never seen a great account of why that is, because I I don't buy that it's complete disempowerment. I mean, you look at 2008 to 2010, and there was a very sharp shift in resources towards things that really did benefit lower income Americans, things like Obamacare, things like the refundable tax credits. So I don't really buy that it's total, it's a belief that nothing can change. So much Mm -hmm. changed then, and then nobody turned out. There was such a sharp drop-off in turnout in 2010. So what is your read of the evidence on why we see those shifts? So the people who tend not to vote in what, you know, we call midterm elections, but you could also call sort of low information, low mobilization elections, right, where many people when polled don't even know that there's an election going on and certainly haven't been contacted by any party are more likely to be young, more likely to have moved, more likely to be a single head of households, and more likely to be people of color. So in some ways, I think this is a failing of our political apparatus to engage in year-long what is simply known as community organizing. And it is true that it takes more engagement to have you know more working-class people who are not retired, to be politically educated about what is going on in terms of the candidates and the opportunities to vote on off cycles. And our apparatus just really has not done that. I mean, the parties, for a lot of kind of reasons of of misaligned incentives in terms of who gets paid and how, and I'm obviously more familiar with what happens on the Democratic Party side, are not spending the money and the resources to invest in the kind of voter contact, not ads, television and radio ads, which are important part of the way consultants get paid, but year-round voter contact that keeps people engaged and politically educated about, you know, a pretty unknown election. Why do you say it's a misaligned incentive? I mean, I think about this. I've spoken to people in the Obama administration about this, and they see this kind of 
continuous midterm swing against them as the single biggest challenge to their agenda long term. And they're pretty data driven. I mean, they they know the research here on what works and what doesn't work. I mean, I don't think there's been a more data driven set of campaigners in contemporary American political history. If you feel that this is just a question of fundraising followed by correct allocation of resources. Why aren't they doing that? Why isn't David Pluff saying, no, fuck radio ads. We're going to go into, <laughs> in, in, into the communities because their incentives seem very precisely aligned. That's right. But, but David Pluff is not running in the off years, right? And so talking to the White House about the way they would run a campaign is different than talking to the congressional apparatus and different than talking to, you know, the community groups who say we are here to work full-time on engagement, and our budgets swell in presidential years and shrink as soon as the election is over. In general, we need a lot more community organizing in this country. I mean, democracy is not just about the vote, and it's not just about donating, but it's also about the sort of everyday democracy that is people coming together, seeing the political and public choices tides to the things that keep them up at night and taking collective action. And I don't want to sound like uh, Bob Putnam here, but the, the the loss of civic organizations, of collective organizations and the like really in sharp increase in, in just stress of working families right now means that there are very few ways for people to engage with one another on collective problem solving. Who do you think the Democratic Party serves? <laughs> The very cynical part of me thinks that both parties serve the people who pay them, right? And so I mean both the fundamentally the people who from whom they can raise money. It really can't be overstated what a small slice of the American people uh, actually give in any significant amount to federal candidates and how distorted the demographics of that population are, right? Over 90 percent of the gifts over $200 in 2012 came from majority white neighborhoods. It shouldn't be a surprise then that actually over 90 percent of our elected officials at, at every level in the country are white, even though the country is about 40 percent people of color. So we have a lot to do. And fortunately, and the good news is, is that there's actually a ton of ideas about how to fix it, about how to make our democracy more representative, whether it's automatic voter registration so that the onus of uh, becoming a person who's eligible to vote is on the government, not on on the individual. And obviously, um, small donor match public financing of campaigns, which we have in New York City, which Seattle just passed by ballot. Uh, there are a couple more ballot initiatives coming online this year. And that is a transpartisan issue. I'd like to say that it's what gets citizens actually united is the idea that we need to reform our campaign finance system. So what is a less cynical part of you think? <laughs> I can't even remember the question. No, I'm kidding. Um, the less cynical part of me when I think about who the Democratic Party serves thinks that what unites people to the Democratic Party banner is an idea of a government that works in the public interest, is an idea of linked fate across race and identity, and you know, in many ways, I think that 
that's easier to say now than it would have been 20 years ago. There is more of an ideological coherence in the Democratic Party now. And I think that's a very that's a very good thing, because I think that particularly when it comes to the economic issues, that uh, bolder, more progressive vision is actually more in line with what working and middle class families want and need. So one thing embedded in your comments here, which I think is interesting to explore a bit, is that I am not sure that American politics serves wealthy donors very well either. I think that there is a view that if it's not serving, you know, the working class well, it's probably serving donors well. And I often have the view that it doesn't serve anybody well. I mean, I think immigration reform is a great example of something Mm -hmm. where the donor class was very united and didn't get anywhere near what they wanted. Or, you know, in more recent years, I think infrastructure investment has been another Mm -hmm. example of that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think that we are focused a little bit on the wrong problems that without diminishing the, the importance of campaign finance reform, which I'm for, that we've got in our head an idea of politics. It is a zero sum contest between the wealthy and the working class. And that if we could just take power from the wealthy, we would move power to the working class. And when I look at outcomes, it often seems to be a more zero sum contest between first the two political parties, and then to some degree between action and inaction. And that solving a lot of these problems requires solving some of those problems more frontally. Um, it, it seems to me if you're Charles Koch or you're Sheldon Adelson or you're George Soros, you are not looking at politics right now and thinking, damn, it's easy to get what I want. Right. I will say that, though, that there is a bias in inaction right now. Right. If you're Charles Koch, you are saying that not having a, a massive legislatively produced regulatory system to affect your fossil fuel burning industry, that inaction is good for you. Not having tax reform, because our society right now, our economic system is so tilted, obviously, towards the interests of the wealthy at this moment, inaction is actually good, right? And I think that particularly in this period of having a democratic president, Inaction, which has inaction has been the Republican uh, agenda uh, to stop a Democratic president from doing what they want to do. And we may continue to have Democratic presidents for a long time. So it may be that inaction is always going to be the conservative agenda. And if you look at the current economic distribution, um, that may be roughly better for wealthy people than a government that's able to do um, even what their best wishes would be. Right. I mean, Charles Koch, the Koch brothers right now are understanding how much the American people uh, feel like the deck is stacked and that the game is rigged. So they're starting to run ads and do multi-million dollar campaigns that use, frankly, you know, Bernie Sanders' message. And then their solution that they talk about is cutting regulations so that people with felony convictions can be barbers. Now, that's a very small idea. That's a very worthwhile idea, very worthwhile idea, but it's a very small idea, right? It just goes to show that the sort of ambition of a billionaire right now is not so much government action to change the status quo, 
I mean, I'm being a little bit simplistic here, but I do think the status quo is obviously in the favor of, of so the th- currently I benefiting. Super, I think that's a super interesting point, right? I have begun to think a lot about this question of is American conservatism still in any way conservative? Mm. I think that if you look at what American conservatives want right now, it is often more radical than what liberals want. It requires larger changes to existing institutions. It is more sweeping in its scope. The Ryan budget is bigger than anything Barack Obama is currently proposing. It's much bigger than anything Hillary Clinton is currently proposing. I mean, it would remake Medicare. It would remake Medicaid. It would remake food stamps. It would remake the tax system. I mean, it's really sweeping. And it speaks, I think, to a view among many conservatives. And you hear this articulated in a somewhat different way by, by Donald Trump, but, but echoed across, I think, contemporary Republican politics, that they have lost the country, that they have lost policy in this country, that Obamacare has turned things against them, the tax code raises a fairly low overall level of spending, but it's more progressively tilted than it has been in any time since the 70s. And I, your example of carbon taxes or cap and trade or, or some other carbon pricing scheme where inaction might be better for any energy interest is well taken. But on the other hand, I think, you know, and I talked to some of these guys just in the course of reporting, they feel totally crushed by regulations. They don't know how to get out of there. Mm-hmm. They feel the corporate tax code is nuts and they've wanted to change it for many years and have gotten nowhere on corporate tax reform. I don't think the conservative agenda is really in action. I think that one reason for Trump actually is that conservatives convinced their base that dramatic sweeping mm-hmm. action was needed to rescue the country and they've not been able to take any of it. And it's been in that gap between what Republicans said was necessary and promised they would get done with power and how little they were actually able to get done when they got power, that a lot of this anger has emerged. And again, it's one reason sometimes I think that we look around American politics and think somebody is winning. And often I look around and I think a lot of people are losing. That's right. And that that leads you to a very different kind of analysis of, of what you would have to do about it. Right. I, I mean, I think a lot of people are losing. And I I think you're, you're actually right about the ambition of, and I would call them sort of movement, um, infrastructure, institutionalized conservatives, right? Folks who sort of grew up in the think tanks and listened to their own media and, you know, are applauded at the Beltway events for big, bold ideas. That's sort of a different kind of conservative than the lay conservative who is just a conservative voter. Although there's a, a convergence in some ways because of talk radio and all of that. But I do think that, and this is where the less cynical part of me comes out, of course everyone is losing. And I think we are at a moment in this country where a new idea needs to emerge, which is less us versus them, even I will say ideologically. When I'm a better progressive, I I don't say that conservatives on, are on some fundamental other side of, of, a, of an unbridgeable divide, which is the idea of linked fate. We are a deeply interconnected society, and the only way we can actually thrive economically, socially, is to accept that we can't actually benefit when exploitation is happening around us. We are the only one of the only countries that has so little sense of social solidarity that we are unable to make, I think, fundamental basic steps of progress um, because we're we're 
taught to be at war with one another, taught to be to feel like, you know, progress is a zero sum game. And I think as a true progressive, you need to fight on that level, fight to make the American people feel like we are actually all in it together. And of course, it's harder in this country than it is in Denmark, as as Bernie Sanders likes to compare us to, because we're not all Danish and we didn't all descend from, you know, a handful of families uh, on an island. Right. Um, We are the world's most radical experiment in democracy, this multiracial, multiethnic, multi-origin country where there's someone here with roots to every community on the globe. And we're supposed to feel like one people. You know, when I became president of Demos, my organization, I thought about changing the name because the name, D-E-M-O-S, is actually ancient Greek for the people of a nation and the root word of democracy. And that's pretty opaque, right? I mean, <laughs> to have your name, you know, be uh, an ancient Greek word, people always ask, is it an acronym? Does it stand for something? They capitalize the whole thing. It's a bit of a mess public relations-wise. And yet there's something, I think, deeply profound about what, this idea. What were your alternative names? Uh, a center, you know, center for a new America. I mean, like all the kind of, you know, small pot of names that progressive think tanks draw from, right? <laughs> yeah, there's like, a, there's like a Mad Lib. It's like New America Justice Progress <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> Institute. <laughs> you just sort of jumble um, them around with those magnetic, uh, exactly. you know, word things. Exactly. But I think there's something beautiful about this idea that, in fact, becoming a demos, becoming a a unified people is, in fact, our biggest project in this country. It's actually not at the level of any sort of incremental public policy. It's about the fundamental level of who we define as an American and what we think we owe to one another. And since our founding, that has been deeply and violently demarcated on on lines of perceived racial difference. And we can't be this plurality nation that we are about to be and not finally jettison that. You wrote a fascinating piece with a a co-author for The Nation. And it was, I think, structurally addressed at Bernie Sanders and the trouble he was having winning over voters of color. But I don't think it was really about that. And, And it was a fascinating piece of effort at a kind of synthesis between the economic justice wing of the Democratic Party and the racial justice wing of the Democratic Party. And you wrote that you felt that that the left will have to challenge its own orthodoxy that defines racism as something that wholly benefits whites and solely victimizes people of color. You said the truth is in the post-war era, racism helped create the white middle class. But since the Reagan era, racism has helped destroy it. This idea that 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 the Democratic Party looks at racism as something that wholly hurts folks of color and benefits whites. I mean, that's pretty conventional wisdom. What What do you mean when you say that they that the left has to move beyond that? So, um, you know, as a black woman, as a descendant of enslaved peoples in this country, grew up on the South Shore of Chicago. I am by no means minimizing the harm that racism has done to people of color and to African-Americans in particular that it's doing to, you know, families torn apart by deportation today. The list could go on. However, particularly if you think about the economic anxiety and well-founded insecurity that most white families are facing today, if our politics requires a sense of moral altruism, out of white voters in order for them to support the cause of racial justice, 
That's a pretty high bar. You know, the saying goes that when you're used to privilege, equality feels like a big downgrade, if not oppression. So fortunately, I don't think that the facts actually bear out the idea that white people benefit from the kind of racism that we have today and that people of color are the only people who are harmed. And the way we come to that, and my co-author was Ian Haney Lopez, a Demo senior fellow and a, a professor at Berkeley Law School, where I went. He was my professor. He was the reason I went to that school. And now I get to make him a Demos fellow. It's pretty cool. <laughs> um, so the way we think that bears out is that, Ezra, I think you and I both sort of came up in the idea of a sort of very economically progressive story that talked about the post-war period from the mid-40s to the mid-1970s as a sort of golden era of prosperity where there was a social contract between business and labor and government, and it was true, right? And, you know, kind of the rising tide lifted all, you know, white male boats, and things were great. And then something shifted, and you can start telling the story of what shifted in the mid-1970s and the 80s in a way that doesn't include race at all, right? That's about the Powell memo, about sort of corporations learning to organize, about changes in tax and trade policy. Obviously, you can talk about it in terms of anodyne forces like globalization and technological change. But I think the real story has to include race, right? It has to include how it was that the white vote shifted so dramatically after the civil rights era and a sort of new racial formation of the conservative party and how fundamentally this question of do we order our society so that there are big progressive public investments in all of us became a lot harder to say yes to when that public that was included did not look like you. You know, we say in the piece that the economic inequality that Bernie Sanders rails against is what America gets when it prefers to drain the public swimming pool of economic opportunity rather than let people of color swim too, right? So why is it that it became so much harder for the average American to get by once the face of the average American changed. And you start to see an austerity rise before the sort of word became widely known and in vogue. But with the Reagan revolution, it was a very racialized view of government, right? Government became tied to the idea of undeserving minorities who were either criminal or lazy, right? Either gangs or welfare queens. And so white voters became alienated from the idea of government and government benefits because they didn't, in the conservative mythology, benefit them. They benefited the other. And so has that hurt inner city communities? Absolutely. But it's also led to a tripling in the cost of tuition over the past generation, right? We have a video coming out in the next month, which is about how racism has driven up the cost of college, right? Because public higher education has suffered from dramatic, about quarter out of every dollar, public funding cuts. And that has been part of a regime, an anti-government regime that has been very racialized in our politics. But the people who suffer are, of course, white families as well. You can talk about that sort of racialized anti-union drive as well. You know, when Scott Walker came in and, and really made welfare queens out of public sector union members. Um, and who benefits when unions are weaker? Only the very, very wealthy. So, we're trying to make a a broader push to 
educate and enroll white progressives who are really understanding the role of economic inequality as an organizing principle. So, so as I understand the argument here, the, the, the point is, is this, that the, the way in which racism has begun to have victims who are not just non-white is that it has been used to discredit a broad variety of government programs and forms of government action that really were oriented towards class, mm-hmm. that racism has been used as a, as a tool in, in what, what's fundamental, I think, in this, in this analysis, a kind of class war, and that the result is a policy equilibrium that, yes, it's bad for, for voters of color and particularly for, for poor voters of color or just Americans of color, but has also been really bad for, for poor whites. That's exactly right. Take, for example, the cost of college. Ronald Reagan began to successfully, and it's it's been done ever since by conservatives, marry the public image of government spending with undeserving minorities who were either undeserving because they were criminal or because they were lazy in the image of the welfare queen. And so if you have a broad um, revolt against government spending and a rejection of the idea of government spending, as the famous Lee Atwater quote goes, once you start talking about cuts, uh, it's a lot more subtle than saying the N-word, but you get to the same effect. Now, that is true, but what's also true is that white families need government too. In fact, government helped create the white middle class in the post-war period. And uh, I think nowhere is it more vivid than in the rising cost of college. We're releasing a video, Demos and Move On, in the next few weeks about how racism has helped contribute to the rising cost of college. So why has tuition tripled over the course of the past generation at public institutions of higher education? The main driver is a massive set of cuts at the state level. About a quarter out of every dollar per pupil has been cut. And so what's what's been the political background of all of these spending cuts, right? It's been this conservative ideology of spending cuts that, you know, it's it's not really clear why a sort of base white conservative really wants a very small government, right, and really wants spending cuts if they're just a working or middle class household. Why am I driven to the polls to cut spending? It's In large part, um, and lots of different research has shown this, that the idea of government spending has been racialized. So that's fine, right? We we move to sort of state-level austerity before recessions, during recessions, after recessions. But who gets harmed? Yes, uh, you know, f- the the very few families who still get, you know, cash assistance or uh, any support uh, who are, are very poor get harmed. Though of course, the majority of those are white families as well. But when you look at the the idea of affordable college, which is something that is um, very much an important part of a white middle class family's life, suddenly they have to take out uh, tens of thousands of dollars in loans. And we're making the point that this racialization and therefore degradation, because, uh, you know, um, people of color have still a degraded identity in the um, public imagination and discourse, this racialization of government has hurt all of us. What does that point to in terms of strategy? That progressives can't say we need government this, government that, government this, 
without really dealing with the underlying racial dynamics. And so you can't have the Bernie Sanders platform with a massive expansion of government to make us look more like Denmark when our people don't look like the people in Denmark. We don't have that homogeneity. We don't have that sense of social solidarity. So we at Demos believe that there are root forces at play, even if you want an entirely economic agenda that require us to to do the hard work on race. So one thing I think is interesting about this argument at this moment is that when you ask what strategy does it imply, I think it implies Donald Trump. To back out the argument a little bit, I think that what you're arguing, and, and you can tell me if I, if I pull a premise wrong here, but I think that what is, is being said here is that modern conservatism is in many ways a second best compromise. It's a compromise between a donor class that for very specific reasons wants lower taxes, less regulation, and it's a compromise between a white working class that maybe does not want a smaller state maybe does not want lower taxes on the rich, but does not want to be paying taxes and accepting a state where those benefits are going to voters of color, where they're going to immigrants or or worse, unauthorized immigrants, where they're going to, to someone else, to the other. And that out of that was forged a kind of compromise where small government ended up working for a lot of different parts of the coalition, even if it wasn't always their their first best idea. At the very least, it was it was better than what the Democrats were offering. And in many ways, it seems like in his rhetoric, at least, if not in the specifics of his policy proposals, Trump has been trying to pull that apart, that he's been sort of frontally attacking the Republican donor class and making an argument that he's going to have a big state, a huge state, the most beautiful, elegant state you could possibly imagine. And he's going to make sure, though, that in that state, in in the spending that goes into Social Security and Medicare and jobs in the wall, that that money is going to go to you, the people who made America great, not to the immigrants, that that money is going to go to you and implicitly not, I think, to people of color. And that one reason Trump poses such an interesting challenge to the Republican Party is that he's pulling that strategy apart or at least maybe taking it to its logical conclusion, which is not small government conservatism, but is a kind of nationalistic populism that accepts a bigger government but targets the benefits of that government more tightly on, you know, for lack of a – this is imprecise, but for lack of a better term – well, in this case, white, white, white voters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's exactly right. And that's why when people ask me, what do you think of this election? Are you just horrified? I say, yes, of course, I'm horrified. But I actually think this is an important part of our political growing up in this country to have Donald Trump, who makes dog whistles explicit and who actually is um, signing the divorce papers for what's been an unholy marriage within the conservative coalition. And my instinct is to respond to the false patriotism and nationalism of Donald Trump with a true patriotism. I'm a very patriotic person, even though I'm a black liberal woman. Um, I'm a very patriotic person. But it's because I believe that If this country is exceptional, if America is exceptional, it's because of the great diversity of our people. And I actually think now is a moment for a new 
story about who we are as a country that says that our diversity is our greatest asset, that who we're becoming demographically, which is a a pluralistic nation with no dominant racial majority, is actually not the unmaking of America. It's the fulfillment of it. We are a country that is not united by race or religion or creed or language or pretty much any other identifying factor. And so we've got to stop denying that that is who we are and actually say that that is what makes us great. Now, that requires a whole different set of social institutions. It requires us to understand that building a sense of solidarity and community across difference is itself work and, in fact, should be the work of our politics. And right now, it's exactly the opposite. And I think that in, you know, at, in his best moments, the president was able to do that, to call us to our higher selves and to wrap that plurality in the flag. And it's not surprising that you're seeing a backlash with Donald Trump right now in sort of trying to wrestle the flag back to the idea of a white America. But this is the fight. This is absolutely the fight. It's only going to be more present over the course of our lifetimes as demographic change really helps America fulfill, I think, its destiny as uh, as the nation where all of the world's peoples are meeting. And we can either say we're meeting here to compete with one another, right, which is, I think, the a Republican or a conservative view of, of why that is, or we can say that we're all the world's peoples are meeting here so that we can finally give lie to the idea of, of racial difference uh, so, and so, actually find our common humanity. So let me push you on this a little bit, because the, as a vision that is, it, it's, it's beautiful and it's inspiring. But, you know, when I think of mapping it onto American, not just politics, but cultural attitudes as they exist, something that I think can be tempting to do is to take things that are are believed authentically and attribute them to a kind of villainy, uh, to attribute them to to larger forces that are acting cynically and strategically. And in many ways, the Republican Party elites in recent years have wanted to have a less competitive view of the economy than their base did. I mean, the immigration fight is a really good example of this. It is authentically believed in a very deep way by many, many people in this country that the economy is a zero-sum game, mm-hmm. that the stock of jobs is on some level fixed, and that allowing immigrants into this country, even though the economic evidence suggests differently, that allowing immigrants into this country is a primary or at least very significant cause of stagnant wages of high unemployment, uh, of of the various economic ills that ail us. You see this in a, in a bunch of different places. And so when you think about this kind of competitive view of the economy and competitive view of broader nationalism as something that's sort of authentically found, mm-hmm. I think it raises real challenges for this kind of view. I mean, I, I think that as I, as, I understand the, as I understand the version here, you're sort of saying... Well, look, like the thing that you would get if you were able to to let this go is a government that is able to work more for you or benefits that are really going to help you is opportunity maybe that we're going to be able to give you. But on the other hand, you made this you had this really interesting line earlier in our discussion 
that when you, and I'm not going to be able to say it as eloquently as you did, but that when you move from a place of privilege to a place of equality, mm-hmm. that that can feel like oppression or, mm-hmm. or at least discrimination. Mm-hmm. And I think there's really something to that. And and I think there's something to that, not just on the economic level, but on the status level. Yep. Right. There's a status that people are Absolutely. losing in this country. They look and see a black president on the television. They turn on the Oscars and Chris Rock lectures them about institutional racism, <laughs> that there's something people are feeling yeah. and that I wonder if it doesn't have some more of a zero sum component. Like, are they really wrong? Oh, it absolutely does. I'm not saying it's wrong. That's why I'm saying this is hard work, right? Right. Um, <laughs> I think there is a genuine... So let me back up for a second. So you talked about immigrants are coming into this country and and there's a real feeling like they're taking jobs, right? And if you live next to a construction site and you see lots of Latino immigrants, you can say those used to be jobs that went to, you know, X, right? I, I absolutely believe it can be very authentically held as a view. But that was also the case when the Irish came. And what did we do as a country We created a new identity that was coherent, which was whiteness. That gets to this question you're talking about, which is it's not just about the money in my wallet. It's about my sense of who I am. So that is, I'm saying, what we need to create. And I think it's going to take some time, but it's certainly not aided by the way our politics are contested right now. I think in some ways on the left and the right. Because I think we actually need a new national identity that gives us status as Americans that is not just about whiteness and non-whiteness. And I think there needs to be something that all Americans can take a sense of pride in. And I think the only way that that pride will be consonant with a progressive economic view, a progressive social view, is if that pride comes from our diversity. Now, have we ever done that? In some ways, you could say that when the the body politic, let me put it that way, was a country of various European enclaves and we created this new overarching identity, that was a new formation, which was whiteness. That said, of course, it required an other to be defined against. So can we do that without building a wall? You've talked a bit about how a potential silver lining of Trump is that more so than any politician, human being or creature I have ever seen, he makes subtext text. <laughs> he seems to exist almost entirely to say, no, this is what we really meant. <laughs> it's kind of an amazing thing to watch. But you said that the silver lining of his candidacy is that he's taking a conversation that happened through dog whistles that happened quietly and making it clear and explicit and loud. If he is defeated, if he loses this election, if he goes down, you know, 44, 56 or even 48, 52, does that strain in American politics lose or does it cohere? Does he give it a name and an ideology? And does he give future politicians who are maybe less divisive than he is a template? I think that's a really good question, and I think that depends on what we do as a country, right? And I say as a country, not just as uh, political candidates, but cultural institutions, um, our education system, right? We have a lot of work to do to knit together a sense of being one people. Um, We need a truth and racial healing commission in this country. Most people don't even know the basic facts of our history that are not history. They're with us today. Just take, for example, what 
the counties that had the highest population of of enslaved people after um, emancipation are still now today, uh, you know, less have less public investment, which was a, a very uh, rich part of the conversation in the post Civil War South. Right, the idea that of course we're not going to create public schools and public libraries in these places, so this is a real problem. They have less public investment; they're more likely to be Republican and hold more negative attitudes towards. Black people today. Um, so the idea that we can be this sort of pluralistic nation and not make racial understanding, I don't want to use the word reconciliation because we were sort of never together to be reconciled, but part of, of what we do as an entire country is, a, is, a, is absurd. And so, yes, if we keep having, frankly, a progressive side that, you know, at its best, talks about issues, talks to audiences of color really exclusively about issues of discrimination and voting and housing, and then talks to white audiences about class, which is what we've seen in the Democratic primary, um, then, yeah, I think it will be a long time before we do the work we need to do as a country. But I do think that there are one of the benefits of this a, of the Black Lives Matter movement and B, of the, you know, the obvious racism of Donald Trump and his campaign has been that there are a lot more people that say, hey, I guess we actually still do have work to do. What do you think conservatives get right? Um, and I don't mean <laughs> yeah. tactically here. I mean, what are parts of the conservative analysis of, of American public policy that you with your think tank head hat on? find appealing or insightful and wish progressives paid more attention to? You know, it's so funny because there's so much about the conservative set of strategies and tactics that I think we have a lot to learn from, the way they marry race and class together in one breath, the way that Donald Trump is, the way and the way that Paul Ryan does, right? He would never say, admit it, but when he talks about his budget is marrying race and class in many ways. So I could talk about that at length. Did, um. did, you, did you hear that recently Ryan came out and apologized for his past makers and takers rhetoric? Well, fine, but he should change his budget then, right? <laughs> I mean, like, I don't. Great. I'm glad that Donald Trump has made Republicans feel a little bit more uncomfortable about the, you know, when they came right up to the line of what Donald Trump is now saying explicitly. But their budgets their policies still reflect that basic view that some people are just worth more than others. And so we should make sure that the people who are worth a lot have a lot. It's this crazy view that it's good for rich people to have more money, but it's not good for poor people to have more money. Hold on. I've, I've gotten you, though, instead of to tell me something you think conservatives are getting right on policy, to tell me a bunch <laughs> of things you think they're getting wrong. <laughs> so want to back us up um, for a second. Well, here, maybe, maybe one of the things I think that conservatives are right about is the idea that it is good for people who are going to be productive in the economy to have enough money to do that. I just happen to expand the idea of people who they think who I think are productive beyond the donor class. But you want me to say something really meaningfully uh, loving towards conservative uh, policy. Not about loving, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll say I'll lay my intention here a little bit bare, which sure. is that I'm skeptical progressives have everything correct, right? Sure. 
Like it's never, it's never trained. Everybody's got everything right. So I'm always trying to think. I have a lot of disagreements with a lot of different people in, in the in the political system right now. But I'm always like trying to think what when people look back in 40 years are going to be the things that were consensus now or mainstream now and are going to look crazy, right? There is so much that I think if you look at uh, 1960s America or 1970s America, that was pretty broadly believed that now looks really like kind of nuts in retrospect. And I'm always like trying to think what are the things that I'm taking for granted that are, you know, and, and are not thinking hard about alternatives because they exist now maybe a little bit more on the fringe or they exist within messengers I don't really like mm-hmm. that is, is going to seem like it was obviously the right move. Well, I think one, I, I'm not going to say that this is a conservative idea, but I do think that the global interconnection of work of ideas as well as of capital is something that progressives don't spend enough time contending with and asking what is our vision because it's so clear that the conservative vision of global capital flows and global trade, which is run by multinational corporations and which seeks to kind of be a race to the bottom is so obviously not what we want. But I don't think that we we spend enough time in general. There are a few exceptions, but I don't think we spend enough time in general thinking about, OK, migration is going to be one of the defining features of our lifetimes, whether it's fueled by global climate change and resource wars or something else, but probably enough just there. So what actually do we want in terms of a sense of global governance of the flows of humanity as well as global governance of the flows of capital and the sort of employer contract. I don't think we do enough thinking about that as progressives. And I think conservatives do a lot of thinking about that and multinationals do a lot of thinking about that. So I'd say that's a place where I'd love the anti-free trade posture of most progressives at this moment um, is something we'll look back and say, hey, I wish that there was more creative thinking about that. I think there's an interesting background point there, which is our thinking about policy is heavily structured and often unwisely limited by which tools we have access to. Mm -hmm. So I think that that behind that, we do a very poor job, and I mean we as in everybody who contributes to the policy discussion, not literally everybody, but the, the policy discussion in general. We do a very bad job thinking about problems that are non-military but cross-border in nature mm-hmm. because governance of those kinds of problems is difficult, it's ineffectual, and it's often very opaque. Similarly, I think that we think way too much about taxes because it is there is such a clear mechanism mm-hmm, for it mm-hmm. and way too little about, say, where people live in this country. I think mm-hmm. there's really tremendous evidence at this point that a big part of economic uplift is helping people live in places that are dynamic, that are mm-hmm. growing, that have mm-hmm. jobs, that make them more productive. We do a very poor job thinking about that because we don't really have, you know, it's governed to some extent the city and local level, things like housing policy, mm-hmm. but also just because the, the tools aren't obvious. Right. We can and make people move. Have, right, exactly. And we don't even try to really help them. We don't do mm-hmm. relocation or anything. And this is a systematic 
creator of blind spots in our policy discussion. Yeah. We are very good at talking about things that we are very comfortable with the tools to change them and very bad talking about things where we are uncomfortable with the tools or maybe we haven't even created the tools that would change them. Well, maybe and that's, I think is the, yeah, please. I was just going to say maybe that's part of why um, we are so reluctant to talk about racism because we don't feel like if the civil, it, there's sort of this feeling like if the civil rights movement and Barack Obama couldn't fix it, <laughs> how are we going to fix it? And I think that's why it's important to recognize actually how little we have done, how much some societies that have you know experienced great social trauma, great historical injustice, make it a part of sort of every public public ritual, public culture, have a much more self-conscious sort of cultural front around it. And I think that's where we need to be. My mother, actually, who is in many ways my inspiration for, for life in, in public and public policy, is right now at the Kellogg Foundation. And she launched a program almost a decade ago called America Healing, which was about the need for individual and community level healing from the trauma of racism and, and sexism and and other identity-based psychic and economic and other violence, and has now launched a concept for a truth racial healing and transformation commission that has a couple of hundred signatories to it in terms of, you know, civic institutions and all that. And the idea is, you know, different than the truth and reconciliation commissions that we have seen in Rwanda and post apartheid South Africa and, and actually many other countries, as well as some localities in the U.S. But the idea is to really engage in a very decentralized, community-level, but networked process of really contending at the level of public education, at the level of community organizings and gatherings with these fundamental questions of, of who we are, of what we owe to one another. And it's it's possible, but we don't feel like it's tax policy, right? We don't feel like it's something that we've really ever done as a nation or as a community. I mean, the unbelievable levels of trauma history has imposed on various communities in this country that we just move forward from. And that's actually a part of our sort of public religion is we just move forward from them, Um they stay with us, and it's time for us to really contend with that. We're a country that values forgetting in a way I think a lot <laughs> yeah. of other countries don't. I, I, right. I'm not even sure. It, sometimes it might be a good thing, but yeah. it, it is a very it is a very powerful thing about America. I mean, I was thinking about World War One, and you know this fight based on grievances that were from like the 1500s. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you know, Americans. Uh, I had a history professor in college who said who said America had the rule of 90s that. Ninety uh, percent of Americans forgot ninety percent of what had happened within ninety days, <laughs> and he didn't. So I mean, it even is a bad thing. Right. Something that I think is is interesting about the broader set of questions there is that when we think about how to have conversations about these parts of our heritage, when we think about how to fix them, people want a fix, and mm -hmm. I, and I think that if you're if you don't have language. For fix, mm -hmm. the political system begins to reject it. Yep. I'm really interested in this around the discussion of political correctness uh -huh. because I think that a lot of these debates that you've seen in the last couple of years, and these are debates that have really emerged, I think, at a time when the internet has allowed members of more marginalized communities to say, 
this thing that doesn't bother you is an ongoing trauma to me. It mm-hmm. really matters to me. And, you know, I often see folks say, you saw it around the beginning of Black Lives Matter, but you often see it around around other requests for people to pay attention to a grievance. You know, people say, well, what do you want done? Well, what mm-hmm. is your what is your policy platform here? And that if you don't have it, eventually the conversation begins to get fought off as soft, as fuzzy, as, you know, just people complaining, as just being about people wanting to express their feelings or wanting to be protected from something. And, and something that has really struck me about that conversation is that that is a real expression of a kind of privilege mm-hmm. that folks from the more dominant, historically dominant groups in this country have had a lot of time to structure their grievances into political language that we understand how to deal with. Mm-hmm. And so the debates are empirical and they're technical and, you know, they have policy proposals on both sides and they feel very serious. And then you have these things where you're dealing with a newer grievance or maybe not a newer one, but one that's only now being taken seriously. Mm-hmm. And the debates are much more chaotic. They're much angrier. They're much more personal. They're much less structured into policy questions. And then they get dismissed for that reason. But but that's part of the issue. That's part of how the de- the conversation has been stacked, that we have a really good way of talking about the ways in which, you know, rich folks feel the tax system is unfair, <laughs> or even poor whites feel that the college admission system is unfair, mm. but very little language for talking about trans rights or very right. little language for talking about the ways in which lower level forms of misogyny affect mm-hmm. people. And I think that's really come out as a tremendous debate in the era of the internet, but it's one that I, I think that we are still really struggling with how to fit it into some kind of format where the political system knows how to engage with it. I think that's a really great point, Ezra. And um, it also is one of the profound shortcomings of the Democratic Party, which, you know, lost the white vote because it was so supposed to be the vote of the cultural minorities and yet hasn't served the cultural minorities very well either. Right. And so... The movement for black lives is going to come out with a policy agenda this summer, you know, and tied with the conventions that I think will show a level of ambition that is even for this more progressive Democratic Party that we're now seeing beyond the four the four corners of of that of that party right now. The ideas about what to actually do with the overwhelming Violence that has been done to deindustrialize communities of color over our lifetimes. It's so total and so builds upon layers and layers of neglect. And yet, the political conversation, even within the Democratic Party and on the left, about why it is that inner city communities are the way they are today, has just been so impoverished. And so blaming of residents of those communities, it, it takes a minute, right, to unpack really what it is that would need to change. And it's pretty fundamental and bold stuff that needs to change. And this is why I know this is, um, you know, as a public policy person and a wonk who's the president of a think tank, I, you know, I keep it may be disappointing, but I, I keep coming back to this idea that the the fundamental belief about the worth of black people needs to change. That's why Black Lives Matter was so powerful, moved people who were not politicized 
into action, you know, made people of all races lay down and do die-ins in Grand Central Station and take to the streets and, it, you know, read things that they would never have read and put Ta-Nehisi Coates' book on the bestseller list is because there was something like deeply resonant and true about the level at which they were, we, as members of the Black Lives Matter movement, were, were, were talking. And it was not just about policy. It was about the the belief. You know, at Demos, we often talk about, you know, what comes first, change in policy or change in belief? And I think there's a good argument for both, right? A lot of times changes in policy shift the way that people live together, um, shift expectations. And so belief then changes. But when there's something as fundamental as the belief that black people are not human beings, which, of course, was the necessary justification for slavery, right? You can't be this idealized founding father's nation and, you know, have these enlightenment views about equality and liberty and yet keep what would be millions of people in chattel slavery and not justify it, not say there's actually something deeply wrong with people with brown and black skin that justifies them not being treated as human. That's an idea that doesn't fade quickly. I think that is a great place to close. So let me then move to the question I ask everybody at the end of the discussion, which is what are three books that you that have influenced you that you would recommend Mm. the audience read? So the first one would be Dog Whistle Politics by Ian Haney Lopez, who was my professor at Berkeley, as I said, and also is a Demo senior fellow where he talks about how racism has been reinvented and wrecked the middle class. I would also say that right now in this moment when we're talking so much about the working class and the working class and Trump and the working class, there's a pretty paradigm-shifting book out by Tamara Drought, who's also my colleague, called Sleeping Giant, which argues that the new working class is not the hard-hat white male working class, but rather is more female, more immigrant, and more uh, brown and black, and that that awakening of that working class to reclaim the kind of political and and moral high ground of the hard hat white male working class from previous generations is going to fundamentally shift our politics. And then finally, I'll leave it at the, the set of books that I enjoyed the most, most recently. For a lot of people... You're watching Game of Thrones, but you haven't slogged through the books, and they're (laughs) phenomenal. Um, um, And I've always, since I was a very little kid, had a a very rapid uh, uh, fantasy book habit. And I think it's really important to read fantasy. You know, there's a great new collection of stories called Octavia's Brood, which is African-American fantasy and sci-fi, which is named after um, Octavia Butler. The, the very famous and now late fantasy and sci-fi writer. It's such an important thing to to uh, to dream and to imagine another world. And so, if you're reading only books like Sleeping Giant and Dog Whistle Politics, you gotta you gotta get a little fantasy in there too. Those are great, uh, Heather McGee. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ezra. That was Heather McGee. Thank you to her for spending the time here. Thank you to our producer, AC Valdez, to Vox.com and Panoply, who co-produced this podcast, and to all of you fine people, good people out there who spend a bit of your time each week with me. We will be back next week.